Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L Y T E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to Season 6 of Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. This week, the spotlight shines on John Weisberger. John is a bluegrass musician, songwriter, journalist, producer, and, as our conversation reveals, a fountain of knowledge and perspective on 20th century American music. John's career path in music is unexpected and inspiring. I hope you enjoy hearing from him as much as I did. And now, John Weisberger. Hello. Hi, Lawrence. How are you? John, I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. What's going Looking on forward behind? to this. You have an empty trophy shelf behind you. Is that those, <laughs> are those your future accomplishments? <laughs> there's a, there's a few trophies up there, but uh, uh, I took I took over this office from a guy who had a big shelf full of them. So I'm just uh, trying to trying to catch up with him. I thought it ref- <laughs> it reflected a certain optimism about the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, fingers crossed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's really yeah. great to meet you. Thank you for making time. Absolutely. Um, My pleasure. Yeah. I, uh, in, in, uh, trying to figure out where to begin, I'm not going to lie. Uh, is a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a challenge. You, you, you <laughs> up to a lot of things. Um, but that always makes for the best con- kinds of conversation. Um, and how you wound up doing so many different things is something I would love to explore. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. But at the sake of going back too far, um, I did want to, uh, I did want to ask you a little bit about uh, sort of your roots, not only with this music, with bluegrass music, mm-hmm. but um, your earliest exposures to music. You know, I don't think of bluegrass necessarily as something um, a kid might grow up with unless you're of the culture. And I wonder right. if you could talk a little bit about your early exposure to music and how that led you to bluegrass. Sure. Um, so my parents, um, uh, my parents were, fans of two kinds of music, I would say. The biggest interest was in classical music, mm. and then secondarily in folk music. They were, I was born in 1952, and uh, so my parents were kind of not, not deeply involved in, but kind of aware of and interested in the, the earliest folk music revival. So I remember listening to uh, a Pete Seeger records when I was, when I was uh, a, a young child, uh, as well as classical music, and um, I, my father played the recorder and uh, got me and then my two younger sisters started on on that pretty much. I have a photograph of myself somewhere around here at the age of, um, must have been three or so, uh, with a recorder in my hand. So I know I was, <laughs> I got a very early start there, and um it was kind of interesting. So folk music, a little bit of the background in my background there. Um, uh, but classical music was what really kind of interested me. And um, I began playing the recorder very, very young. And then um, in the third grade, I was inter- I started playing the oboe. And I played classical music all through high school and was 
semi-serious about it. I was good at it, if I say so myself, um, and semi-serious about it and kind of toyed with the idea of making a career in playing the oboe. I was, went to high school in Rochester, New York, which is where the Eastman School of Music is, and Bob Sprinkle, who was the uh, principal oboist with the Rochester Philharmonic, also taught at Eastman. And uh, I took lessons with him, and he said, well, I can get you into Eastman, but you're going to have to show that you really want to do this. And I thought about it and decided, no, nah, I don't really want to do this. So playing the oboe, it's a wonderful instrument, but you spend a ridiculous amount of time just scraping away at your little reeds. And I, that did not appeal to me at all. So I passed on that. But um, uh, in the meantime, in the early 60s, I guess when the Beatles came along, my sisters actually got interested in the Beatles first, and then I kind of followed along behind them. So I got interested in rock and roll. Um, and very quickly uh, was introduced to blues music. And that was kind of my big, that's the first thing that really, first vernacular music that really grabbed me. And, uh, and I remain a fan to, to this day. And so I started playing, to, I started playing the bass guitar in a band when I was about 13 or 14 in the blues band and played all through high school. And somewhere in my later high school years, so this would have been the late 1960s, um, kind of stumbled across country music. And that really grabbed me um, uh, profoundly. And this was at a point, I, I, so I was in upstate New York, which there was a country music audience of some sort. There was a good country music radio station uh, that I listened to, but I had no connection with any kind of musical scene. This is something I listened to. Um, and it was something that most of my friends and peers had no particular interest in. And so it wasn't until I moved out to, uh, uh, to the West Coast that, 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 uh, that I really started to play country music. And um, I had this very sort of split uh, musical personality. I actually graduated from the California Institute of the Arts, which is Tyler Grant's uh, alma mater, uh, with a degree in music composition. And I did all this avant-garde electronic music stuff, with synthesizers and very, very intellectual music. Um, I did that by day in school. And then at night I was going out and playing in these little honky tonks around Southern California. And uh, that it turned out was the music that really stuck with me. And uh, interestingly, I, be I think partly because I was, wasn't, connect really connected to the culture early on when I was listening I made no distinction between bluegrass and other kinds of country music so I would listen to Merle Haggard and Flatten Scruggs and Bill Monroe and Charlie Pride and it was all country music to me and it wasn't until the late 1970s when I heard a person named Red Allen that I really kind of zeroed in on bluegrass and, and, uh, and gravitated especially towards that and went down that rabbit hole and I haven't really come back out since <laughs> All right. There's a lot to work with there. So thank you. Sure. Um, I do love the idea that there's an alternate universe where you're like manipulating tape reels and uh, and and wiring electronics to come up with uh, your compositions, as opposed mm -hmm. to what I'd imagine is a bit more of an organic process now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when you talked about the, the folk revival, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about there. Mm -hmm. um, one will be related to your interest in music, and one is just uh, I'm going to tap into sort of what I perceive to be a bit of a musicologist in you. Um, sure. And that is when people refer to the folk revival, um, that to me implies there was a time before that when folk like folk was being revived. When was it being revived from? Well, um, 
I would say from the, it was really kind of, well, the revival is a little bit of a misnomer, but there was a, there was a big wave of interest in folk music in the, uh, from kind of multiple directions in the 1920s, uh, particularly. And so that was the kind of first big flowering of, of recorded music and all these, all this with the Carter family and Eck Robertson on the fiddle and Jimmy Rogers and all that were kind of getting, getting their start. And that was, that was called vernacular music. It wasn't called, it was by the end of that period, it was kind of starting to be called hillbilly music, but it was also called folk music. Um, and there had been this big interest going back to the turn of the century with the ballad collectors, people going out into the, into the mountains and collecting all these songs. So, and then that was kind of eclipsed. The, the depression knocked a big hole in the recorded uh, uh, end of, of, of that of, of that music, um, and a lot of artists got dropped from their from their labels, and so uh, you know, and then kind of jazz came, big band jazz came along, and and uh, and, and popular music, and you had the, the the crooners, and you had the commercialization of country music, where where this folk style became commercialized. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but just that's what had became an industry, and so. So what was being revived in the in the fifties, I think, was the more communitarian and participatory aspects of 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 these styles, and kind of a, the the Harry Smith anthology of, was a huge influence on that folk revival, and that literally was a revival because he went back and got all these you know seventy eights from the nineteen twenties again, which by that point you know thirty years on had kind of been lost. Uh, uh, had faded from the public consciousness, I guess you might say. So, so the first time around, is it, is it a stretch or is it fair to say that there was a technological sort of impact on folk music? So regional and local artists or musicians were all of a sudden broadcast or recorded and started to extend their reach. And that was sort of the first popularization of the music. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, okay. you know, and there's, uh, there's some, there's some antecedents to that even, pre-recording you know the mandolin orchestras and banjo orchestras and all that kind of stuff so there was definitely an interest like i said the early ballad collectors in the in the right after around the turn of the century was pre-recording so they were collecting they were going out and writing down lyrics and and transcribing music rather than making an actual sound recording that's incredible that's incredible Do do you know anything about those people who were they like what what led them to that life not very much. Um, uh, there was, there was, uh, there were a couple. There was one. Um, uh, 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 there was a collector named Cecil Sharp. There was a collector named, and these are kind of names. I'm dredging these out of my memory from from having learned something about them twenty or thirty years ago. Maud Carpelis, a K A R P E L E S, were people who, and I think actually, the, so um, it kind of depends on how far you want to want to trace all this back but there was definitely an interest in there was a, one of the thing one of the things that had a big impact on the american folk music that first wave was was a belief that the that the appalachian that the isolated mountains of appalachia and the scots irish populations there were repositories of purer forms of these old english uh, british isles ballads that had been brought over when people came in the in the 18th century and early 19th century, and that they were kind of preserved, whereas 
in England with its industrialization and all that, the songs had changed and, and been corrupted or commercialized anyhow. And so there was an, it, there was this kind of musicological historical aspect to a lot of that early song collecting. They were going out and looking for specifically these songs that had been collected um, uh, by uh, in the child ballads by, by this English folk musicologist in the late 19th century. So, so that was kind of the start. Yeah. 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 So to, then to, to fast forward back again to your, um, your introduction and your experience early on with the blues, would that have been also the blues artists that were resurfaced because of the folk scene? Was it the, the sort of country blues and then the Gary Davises and Sun like, no, it was more, it was more urban blues. I had, I had, a, I, I met a friend who was a year or two younger than I was. This is when I was 14 or 15. Um, who had a Gibson, he had the same kind of guitar that B.B. King did, and he was a big electric blues fan, and he turned me on to this. And the first collection that I remember getting was a wonderful uh, three uh, LP uh, series called Chicago, the Blues Today that the great Sam Charters uh, curated. And the artists on there, there were there each volume had three artists and they did five or six songs a piece. And the first one had Junior Wells and James Cotton and, uh, and, uh, uh, Otis Spann, the piano player. And the second one had Otis Rush and, uh, Johnny Shines. And I, it was just wonderful stuff. And so it was a nice kind of survey of Chicago blues in particular. And that just really grabbed me. I, I and I still listen to that collection, especially to, to this day. It was really, I think it was kind of groundbreaking historically. Um, and, uh, you know, and then B.B. King's Live at the Regal album and then Muddy Waters and all that stuff. So it was interesting because I was definitely more interested in the, in the electric blues side of, of things and the Chicago blues rather than the country blues. Yeah. That's really interesting to me just because thinking of that time, like certainly by, I, I, and again, I, I don't claim to be correct in this assumption, but I, I think, more about mid late sixties and the influence, you know, the repercussions of the British bands introducing electric blues back to America. And I think more in the early sixties about, you know, the, the ones who came up through maybe Newport and were brought to the sort of the white college audience. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Gary Davis, people like that, Elizabeth Cotton, you know, all that, that sort of the country blues, those, those great, yeah. great songs. Um, and so, so one thing that, that, that strikes me um, is, really the 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 musical melting pot represented in you like so you 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 are you're a um an aficionado and a um, a master in this very um sort of traditional american form all you know evolving but uh and, and sure. still vital american form but to hear all these other elements the classical the electronic music the rock the blues uh do you find that that is is that common in the bluegrass world or do people tend to be a bit more uh, uh, parochial or is that too generalized? Um, I, you know, I, there's a fair amount of, I, I think, I think there's a, there's a lot of that kind of diversity of listening diversity of kind of fanship diversity. Uh, I know a lot of bluegrass musicians of every generation, who are interested in a wider variety of music than, than just bluegrass. Many of them tend to kind of place a lot of value on categorization. So they'll say, 
I love that stuff, but it's not bluegrass. Don't call it bluegrass. So, um, uh, uh, but, but there's a lot of appreciation, especially for classic country, which, you know, I mean, like I said, so in the late 60s and early 70s, when I was starting to listen to all this stuff, there was no particular reason to distinguish between bluegrass and country music. And in fact, the bluegrass industry as something as distinct from country music had only been that way for maybe a decade or so. I mean, bluegrass was, it was Bill Monroe's kind of country music and then Flat and Scruggs and, and these other artists and eventually kind of created a, a, a enough of a separate space within the broader country music field to, to merit its own, own name and its own set of institutions. Um, but I think there's, I, I think there is maybe not the particular, I mean, my collection of musical loves is really kind of random just based on my personal experience. But I'd say a lot of people have an appreciation for a wide variety of, of music, but um, you do find a lot of differences in the extent to which musicians allow or feel like they're allowing these different influences to creep into and influence their bluegrass music. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. All right. So just a, a couple of more things on the, on sort of the, the historical path. And then I promise we'll, sure. we'll, we'll get more contemporary. It's all good. I think a lot of times, um, especially looking back, we see sort of like seminal events or seminal figures, and they're they're sort of weighted more in retrospect than maybe they were at the time. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, and, and and then when you start to tease it apart, you find the antecedents. And I right. wonder what what were the what was the pre Bill Monroe bluegrass music to the extent that there was. And so. Um... I'm one of many who is of the opinion that bluegrass really started with a particular edition of Bill Monroe's band, 1947-1948 band with Earl Scruggs playing the banjo and Lester Flatt and uh, Cedric Rainwater on the bass and Chubby Wise playing the fiddle. And But Monroe started, I mean, the Monroe brothers is the most obvious and kind of the biggest antecedent, which was Bill and his brother Charlie. They did, he redid a lot of songs that the two of them did together when he started his own band. They had, they, they, uh, they had a big fight and broke up in 1938 and they each started their own band, Charlie Monroe and Kentucky Partners and Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys. And, um, uh, uh, and the early, and they made recording, they went to start the Grand Ole Opry in 1938, Bill Monroe did, and was recorded, recorded in 1940 and 1941. So we know what his band sounded like before it sounded like what we, what we call bluegrass today. And, um, there were all manner of string bands and that's really kind of the antecedent the the most immediate antecedent were all these uh, string bands uh, snuffy jenkins uh, and and homer sherrill had a had a duo act going in the carolinas and snuffy was playing a, a kind of rudimentary uh, uh bluegrass banjo style using three fingers um there were uh, j.e Maynor. Uh, Wade Maynard. There were a variety of these string bands that were that were uh, over over the course of the late 1930s and into the 1940s were kind of playing faster and and yeah. emphasizing instrumental skill more and starting to develop harmony singing and stuff like that. 
as a historian, as a music historian of bluegrass in particular, I'm very frustrated because the war, World War II, there were no recordings made for, for almost four years, from 1941 to 1945, um, and for a variety of reasons. But the result is that this period of transition in Bill Monroe's band, we know what he sounded like in 1941. We know what he sounded like in 1945. We don't know exactly what came in between because oh, there aren't, wow. aren't the recordings there. So that's kind of a, 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 an inevitable question mark to the history. But, I, you know, there, there was, it's fascinating to me to, when I look at, at the history, is that from the moment that Earl Scruggs joined Bill Monroe's band in December of 1945, people almost immediately thought that sound is something really different. That band is doing something different than anybody else is doing. And they were. And that's part, and that's one, you know, that, that is why bluegrass is unusual, if not unique, in being a genre that you can say, here is when it started. And generally, people agree that's what, the end of 1945 when, when Earl joined the band. That's when that was, that's the bluegrass sound. That became the template for everything else that followed. Um, so the antecedents, the antecedents were you had you had um, you had these string bands. Uh, Monroe particularly brought in a blues element that 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 some people were doing, but but uh, but was not as big a part of the country music scene as it became a part of bluegrass. Um, and uh, and you know the, the, and the brother duet that he and he and his brother Charlie had. Those were those were kind of the immediate antecedents, but it, it is there's a there's a it, you know there are endless arguments about like what what's the first rock and roll record how yeah. did rock and roll begin and all that um, and and you kind of don't really have that with bluegrass because there is this sort of big bang. I mean, there's something so um, I can imagine the frustration, but there's also something so perfect that those years are lost because there it just keeps it. There's a mystical element to it and a, yeah. a magic that. Um, I don't know. There's something beautiful that it's not documented that way. It would become almost too nerdy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's something True nice enough. in the ambiguity. Um, yeah. All right. So that begs the question, though, then in December 1945, if it was recognized contemporaneously, and it sounds like maybe it was or very soon thereafter, what mm -hmm. was the thing? Was it the lineup? Was it the style? Was it the speed and aggression? What, what was it? Well, I think it was a combination of all those things. But but it's interesting because, like I said, Monroe recorded in 1945 with the band that that that, uh, uh, that preceded that lineup. Um, and it's not it, there are a lot of bluegrass elements to it, um, but it's still not it's not quite the quite the same thing. And I think really, I you know, Bill Monroe is widely known as the father of bluegrass, and I think that's correct. It was his band. It was his, you know, he was, and he was already a star. And this is important to remember. This is not something new. He was already a major star on the Grand Ole Opry. Um, but it was the, it was the biggest change that happened between 1945 and 1946 when they, they went to Chicago and uh, made a bunch of records in September of 1946. And, and, uh, uh, so that was, you know, the first the first recordings that they did. Of course, they were playing the Grand Ole Opry all along. Um, but that that uh, that sound it was a combination. The Earl Scruggs told me one time when I interviewed him, uh, he said, 
Well, you know, and of course he he and Lester Flatt and Bill Monroe had these big falling out when they when they left, and it took years, many years, for them to to uh, to make up. Um, uh, but Earl said that one of the things that he appreciated about playing in Bill Monroe's band was that he said that he, the songs were good for the banjo, and they were, you know, and 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 Bill started writing and arranging songs that really highlighted. The, the the banjo sound because that was the that was the biggest difference, um, and it enabled between between that and Lester Flat singing and his guitar ability, they were able to like do things faster and in higher keys and to do more uh, unusually not uniquely but unusually precise harmony singing, you know three and four part harmony singing that that had not been a feature of string band music at least. Um, and, uh, you know, so you put all those elements together and people just say, whoa, this is something that, that really sounds different. Yeah. And so for you, have you always made your life professionally as a musician or in the arts? Or did you did you have a straight gig for a while and then developed your career? Or how, what was your evolution? Well, so, my, so as I said, I got, I got my degree in music composition. Um, and uh, when I graduated I, I kind of had a decision to make about whether I wanted to pursue a career in contemporary avant-garde classical music and the and the career path and there are careers in it but it at that time at least it was very much tied to the academic scene and so most of the composers that I knew were teaching at a university that had some ensembles that had an electronic synthesizer studio and all that. And then they were composing kind of like uh, on the side almost. And that really didn't, the teaching part of it particularly didn't appeal to me. Um, And so I wound up, I kind of puttered around for a while and then wound up, I learned to program computers while I was in music school. So this is the early 1970s and by, Oh, 1978 or 79, you know, there were jobs uh, uh, programming computers and they were good paying jobs and, and people with those skills were very rare. So I spent about 13 years working as a computer programmer and just playing, playing music on the, on the side, some blues and some country and this, that, and a little bluegrassy kind of stuff and, and whatnot. And um, grew to really hate that job. And in 1990, when my uh, first son was born, uh, his mom, uh, who's a physician and so had a, made a good paycheck, um, we decided it would be nice if one of us stayed at home to raise our son. Um, and it was kind of a no-brainer. She liked her job and she made more money than I did anyhow. So so I quit. So I quit and then, and then spent the next, 12 years actually kind of playing music on the side around the Cincinnati, Ohio area, which is where I was living at the time. And I got to be, got to play a lot, four five, six nights a, a week. Um, but I had no day job. And when, when, as, when the boys got older in the, toward the turn of the century, uh, I started thinking about going back to work. Um, I thought, well, now is the time for me to see if I can make a career playing music. Um, and so I moved to Nashville uh, at the end of 2002 with the goal of making it in the uh, making it as a as a bluegrass musician at uh, age 50. So a late start uh, on the on the professional side, but yeah, that's incredible. And so 
that whole time when you were playing, were you also writing? Uh, no. Um, I mean songwriting. I mean, I'm sorry. Right, songwriting. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so I joined, I wound up in a band in, in the, uh, I helped start a band in 1992 called Union Springs um, with, uh, with uh, some guys I've been playing in another band with, and we decided we wanted to do our own thing. And uh, probably the best known of the, of the other guys that I worked with was a wonderful musician named Dwight McCall, who played mandolin in St. Kenner for, uh, from about 1997 until for about 10 years with J.D. Crow in the New South. Mm. He's a wonderful musician. He and I and a couple of other friends started this band. And, you know, this was 1992, and so there weren't project studios and, like, home recording studios were still a thing in the future. And so if you wanted to make a record, you had to find a record label or at least a, a, a actual studio. And we found a guy um, in, in Cincinnati who we knew and who had a label called Vetco Records that actually put out a surprising amount of good regional bluegrass. It was kind of the main label for the, for the area. And, uh, and the guy who ran it, Lou Eucleson, said, well, I'll make a record for you, but, uh, but uh, you need to have some original material. What he actually said was, you need to have original material because I don't want to have to pay a bunch of royalties. <laughs> and with, which I did not quite grasp what that meant at that point. But I thought, well, if the only thing uh, standing in the way of making, making a record uh, is, is some songs, let me, I'll see if I can write a song. And so I uh, went home and I wrote a sad, mournful, heartbreak bluegrass ballad. And I gave it to Dwight, who did all the lead singing in the, in the band. He's a great singer. And he came back after a couple of weeks and said, well, I sped it up. And it turned it into like a mid-tempo bluegrass song. And, uh, and we recorded it. And then the following year, we made a gospel album. And I wrote three songs for that. And then we made another album. And I wrote two songs for that. And then a couple of years later, we started to think about making another record. I wrote a song for that. And then the band broke up instead. And uh, so I had this one song that had not been recorded. And I just kind of sat on it for a couple of years. And... It turned out the guy who was singing lead with the band at that point got in another band and, uh, um, and he was singing that song and another one that I'd written that we had recorded on our third album. And by that point, I was doing a lot of journalism writing, including writing a lot of liner notes. And there was a band uh, uh, out of Missouri called the Chapmans, three uh, sons and a father, uh, great singers and good pickers and all that. And they, I'd written liner notes for an album of theirs and we were at a festival together and um and they knew that i'd written a, these couple of songs for union springs and i said well do, do you have any songs and i said yes and as a matter of fact here's this guy who used to sing with our band who was playing another band at the same festival so they heard him sing the one song that had been previously recorded i went home and dredged up this rehearsal tape of this other song it took me about two weeks to find it and sent it off to them they recorded it, and the Chapmans did, and it became one of the big bluegrass hits of 2001. And so when I went to the International Bluegrass Music Association convention that year, all of these great songwriters were coming out, hey, we should write together. We, wow. let's, let's do some co-writing. And, so that, and that was really kind of what, and then I moved to Nashville not long after that. I had a lot of time on my hands, 
and so I started writing with with people at, at that point, and uh, and and that's where the songwriting career really began. So I had this I had this tiny little stock of songs. I wrote six songs in ten years, and then kind of really started started ramping up from there. Wow, that's a, you're, that's so fascinating, incredible. So, do you write for a perfor- Do you write a song and then whoever grabs it or you want to give it to you, you give it to, or do you write for an individual or an ensemble? Like, do you have that notion at the outset? Uh, both, both. So I'm, I'm, I really, I glommed on to co-writing really quickly because as a songwriter, you know, people, there are many great songwriters who don't need to write with anybody who don't want to write with anybody. And that's, and that's, that's what they do. But there's also, there's a history of all these great kind of partnerships, songwriting partnerships. And um, one of the things that I realized in kind of looking at those um, was that a lot of really productive songwriting partnerships are based on when, when you get people together who have complementary skills mm. and complementary strengths, um, that tends to be the most productive songwriting relationship. And I'm not, I don't get a lot of ideas for songs. Some people, I mean, they're just a fountain of, of ideas and titles and lines and verses and music and all these different kinds of things. That's not me. I get a few, but I tend to kind of squirrel them away because they're so rare. Um, but I do, I learned pretty quickly or, or have a, 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 an ability to take somebody else to take an idea. So if I sit down and write a song with somebody and they have an idea, then we're going to come out with a finished song. Um, And, and, and so um, I have done a lot of writing, uh, co-writing with people um, where what we take the songs that, that we've done and I'll demo them up and pitch them around to different artists and bluegrass and in country music. There are a lot of artists who don't write uh, their own material. But then I've also uh, been lucky enough, um, starting out with Chris Jones, who I played with for about 17 years and started with right when I moved down to Nashville. We started writing songs together after a while. And so we recorded a lot of those and they were very successful. And I developed a broad network of people that I was able to write with, many of whom are artists. And so I have co-written a lot with artists who want to generate material for themselves. Um, so, for example, uh, Billy Strings, uh, I wrote on the previous album, the uh, Home, uh, the one, the Grammy. Uh, he and I met up, and when he started thinking about making a record, um, he reached out to me and uh, and said, "Let's write." And so we started writing together, and so five songs on that album came out of that writing. That was a very deliberate sort of. We're writing these songs for. For Billy and his album, um, uh, with Chris Jones, we would go in. We would get ready to go into the studio, and we would write some songs together and go in and record them. Um, but then I've also, or uh, Jeremy Garrett from the Infamous String Dusters, take another example. He and I have written. I think the String Dusters have probably cut about a dozen of our songs together, and he and I write mostly for the string dusters every once in a while we'll write something that he'll say well i want to keep this for myself because he has a solo career going or i don't want this and i don't think string dusters want it either and so we'll pitch those songs around so we've, we've kind of had all three categories uh there but but 
I hope that answered your question. It, yeah, it's yeah. kind of, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, so a, a lot of the writing that I do is with artists for them. And I'm just kind of uh, a collaborator in helping them to turn their ideas into finished songs that they can then go and record. But I also do quite a bit of writing for uh, just pitching around to, to a variety of artists. Do you find that given your background and your varied interests that you can genre hop or do you need to stay within a lane with your songwriting? I'm, I, I can do some genre. I haven't had many opportunities to do a lot of, of work outside of the bluegrass genre, but I do, I've written some country songs, you know, pretty straightforward uh, country songs. I wrote a few songs. There's a wonderful duo in Nashville called the Danburys. Um, and they were, they had both written songs for themselves separately and they wanted to write together, but they weren't sure how to kind of negotiate their co-writing process. Hmm. And so they brought me in. I wrote a bunch of songs with them and they're more of an Americana uh, kind of, kind of act. I wrote a bunch of songs with them that sort of, I mean, they recorded them, but it also kind of helped them work through how they were going to write together. So they've continued writing together on their own. So some, some stuff beyond bluegrass, but that's really pretty much my wheelhouse. And, 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 but again, within this kind of broad bluegrass realm of writing some very, uh, something I'm kind of proud of as a songwriter is that I've been able to write songs that have been recorded by very traditional, they're very traditional sounding songs recorded by traditional artists, but then also some pretty edgy stuff that, uh, that is definitely more on kind of the, the outer, outer fringes of bluegrass as well. Well, that, that sort of brings me, I, I'm hoping that this is not too boring of a topic for me to bring up to you or too cliche of a topic, but could you, but you went there first. So All <laughs> could, right. you, could you talk to me a little bit about that, um, you know, this notion within bluegrass of the, there's a traditionalist vein and then there's, I guess what used to be called the new grass vein. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of assuming now it's more the jam grass world, but I think that might be the new grass might be the bridging connection guys that were sort of yeah. maybe in a pop, they, they came with maybe popular music idioms or, or realms crossed over. Um, you seem to be a figure that can keep a foot in both of those worlds very authentically. Mm -hmm. um, do you care about that? Or um, is it all just music to you and it's either good music or bad music? How do you, how does this resonate for you? Well, uh, in one respect is definitely, it's all good music. And I, I, I appreciate a wide variety within the bluegrass uh, world. But my kind of what I listen to on my own when I'm just driving, driving up to Nashville or, or going to and from work or whatever is mostly a lot of old bluegrass. And that stuff is just real. I just grabbed, that's what grabbed me about this music in the first place. And, um, and, and, and still hasn't let go. And so, um, but there's, a, there's an interesting kind of phenomenon going on that I've really noticed again, writing with Billy and with the string dusters or with the uh, traveling McCurries who um, uh, I wrote, three songs on their, on their album, uh, two, uh, one, I guess, with Alan Bartram, their bass player, and, uh, and then another two with, with, uh, with Ronnie McCurry and, uh, and uh, Josh Schilling. Um, and, 
um, the songs. I mean, if you take, if you take, if you go to see um, Billy, for example, and he does a song like "Taking Water," which he and I wrote. Um, that song, verse and chorus, verse and chorus, and then there's this long jam, long extended jam, and all the music goes all kinds of different places, and then maybe it comes back to the final bit of the song. But the song itself is still that a three-minute bluegrass song. And, and the same thing with the string dusters. A lot of, a lot of things that, that Jeremy and I have written together or, or uh, that I've written with other guys in the band are, I think that's, that is, if you look at uh, a lot of the jamgrass performances from a kind of musicological perspective, they're, take, they're taking these traditional forms, the songs themselves, like, Here's a verse, here's a chorus, here's another verse, here's another chorus, here's another verse. You know, three verses and a chorus, that's a bluegrass song. And, but they're kind of inserted, they're stretching out the middle of it, where normally in a, in a standard bluegrass performance, somebody plays the verse, and then you sing another verse and chorus, and then somebody else plays the verse, and then it's all done in three minutes. Whereas they're taking that middle part, like once, once the second chorus is done, and playing for three minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever. But, but the bones of the, of the actual composition are pretty much the same regardless. Um, so there's more commonality there, I, I think, than, than, than is evident at first, first glance. Um, and I especially appreciate, I mean, because I love, I love that old sounding Bluegrass, that old, the, 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 the greats of the genre so much. I uh, like to see the ways and, the, and, and I, 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 I like the music and I like the, to me, tradition, especially when you're talking and feel like this tradition is not so much a sound or a style as it is a means of transmitting the music from one generation to the next. And bluegrass is still um, a, an area in which many musicians, no matter where they wind up, uh, no matter how exploratory they get, are rooted in, in an apprenticeship. They served apprenticeships in bands with people who were older, who were more experienced, who were, knew their way around the music, and so accumulated a lot of knowledge about the music and about, about music as a profession and all that um, from previous generations. And so, and I like to see that. I think that's, that's something that's really beautiful and unusual about, about this music. And it reflects itself in the way that the string dusters, for instance, released a, an EP of Bill Monroe songs uh, earlier this year or Billy strings, every show, every set list, there's two or three or four songs from Larry Sparks or Bill Monroe or Mac Wiseman or um, Flatten Scruggs and the Stanley Brothers or whomever, so that so that there is the, even in the jamgrass world, or again the Travel McCurry, same deal. I mean, they grew up playing with their dad, right? And now they're going out and they're doing these these. You know, they're definitely working a lot in the jamgrass circuit, but they're still doing Flatten Scruggs songs and alongside Jerry Garcia songs. And to me, that I love to see that because that is the way that that does two things. First of all, it keeps that music alive just as songs, like people hear those, but it also encourages those, some of those fans and aspired musicians who hear them to go dig back. And that's the way then that the tradition kind of carries forward. Um, and there's a, and there's a thread, a musical thread that connects from the very earliest days until right up uh, uh, right now. And so, so I guess, I mean, I feel like 
in many respects, most of the songs that I have written with people are their bluegrass songs at their core, you know, two, three verses and a chorus, um, you know, or maybe even an older form, like a ballad style form where there's no chorus, right? There's just a series of stanzas, um, you know, uh, 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 these are, these are forms that, that are timeless and are capable of being subjected to a lot of manipulation while retaining their integrity in their original form. So it, I, so I, I think I'm, I'm a big tent guy, I guess this is the way that I like to put it there. There, and I tend to see the commonalities between all these different corners of the big bluegrass tent. Yeah. And so my understanding as well from your work and, um, you sort of behind the base and otherwise is that your philosophy and your mindset of the big tent extends beyond just the songs or the music or any permutation of the style, but to the people making the music and to people being recognized as having contributed to the music or maybe not being recognized for having contributed yeah. to the music. And so to talk a little bit about sort of the social element of sure. the music world and the music scene that you're involved with, could you at least touch on at the beginning how you gained an awareness of these issues and why they're important to you? I, and just to full disclosure, I made a little bit of a mental leap or an assumption that it had to do with your exposure to the folk scene. And perhaps I, I, I you know, I, I think of the, you mentioned a few things early in our conversation that resonated with me. I've talked to other people, um, sort of between our two age groups who mm -hmm. have parents and grandparents who were either first or second generation immigrants, oftentimes Eastern European, maybe Jewish, who came to America and really did embrace the folk music scene. Yeah. And it was part and parcel of the social movements, um, socialism, com, you know, what, you know, that, that was sort of different era to talk about sure. lowercase letters. Um, but a real commitment to social striving. And so I, I so again, I've, I've in full disclosure, I'm throwing that all into your pot, but I'd love to hear what your take is on that. Sure. Sure. Well, so, I mean, definitely my, my parents' interest in folk music came from out of that sort of progressive, uh, social conscious, socially conscious, uh, uh, orientation. Um, and, uh, my dad particularly in the early 1960s was somewhat active in the civil rights movement. And, um, so that was part of my upbringing. Um, and, uh, I realized, I think when I, when I really, decided to immerse myself in the world of bluegrass. So this would have been late eighties, early nineties. I realized that um, I shared a love for the music and a desire to play it and an ability to play it. He said modestly um, <laughs> uh, with people, with people who, for whom it was a much more organic connection this is music that came from their communities um i was living in cincinnati columbus ohio places like that so where there were big uh transplanted appalachian populations that that created a community where this uh, where this music 
grew and, 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 and thrived. And so, and that those were not my communities, but I wanted to play the music that came from those communities with the people who came from those communities. And I realized uh, for me, and it was, it was not an easy thing to do, but I, the first five or six years that I played, I kept very quiet and I listened and I learned and I just kind of tried to suss out who are these people and what, what are they about? And beyond, we have this bond of, of playing music together and appreciating the same music and all, and all that. And you know, I was learning about it and, and uh, um, becoming knowledgeable about it. But um, it's, what really, what really grabbed me um, and sort of made me uh, appreciate the value of diversity, of, of, of the diversity of the people involved in making the music and listening to the music and being both, both part of, being part of the community in every element was my observation that the kind, again, the kind of music, bluegrass music that moves me the most deeply is traditional three chords, you know, uh, 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 straightforward, simple, virtuosic uh, uh, bluegrass that just it grabs me the way that no other music does. It's a, it's a very, it's a very sharp musical flavor. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a very it's like a, it's like cayenne pepper, right? I mean, it's very you either love it or you kind of you know, or maybe you take a little dose of it here and there for some reason. Or but there's a lot of people that it's never going to appeal to. There's a lot of there's 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 like any like any really strongly flavored uh, uh, music, and therefore to preserve and maintain this as an organic living thing and not just a museum piece. You can't afford to turn anybody away. You can't afford to turn anybody away in the audience. You can't afford to turn any musicians away. You have to, anybody, you really have to. I've said in the last five or six years have been really challenging in this regard in that um, I have pointed out on a number of occasions to people that, you know, we all like to talk about how bluegrass music brings every, all different kinds of people together so many different kinds of people together and, and this music brings them all together. And it's true. And there's a good side to that, but there's also a bad side to that in that, um, not a bad side, but there's a, there's, it, 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 it makes it an, a, a potentially an arena for confrontation because you have people who really don't agree on anything except they like this, this kind of music. Oh, and so so it's therefore really challenging. And I feel like my kind of, I, I have some credibility and some stature that I can use to deploy, to bring people of different backgrounds together to make this kind of music. So this Bluegrass at the Crossroads series uh, that, that I've been producing, people from Jamgrass, people from traditional Bluegrass, bring them together, turn them loose on new music and see what happens. Um, uh, my friend Justin Hiltner and I are working on a bluegrass gospel EP, and uh, um, you know he's one of the more prominent uh, LGBTQ musicians in bluegrass. Um, and, but so we we have him playing banjo and singing and writing songs. Uh, we have a mixed gender group. We have a wonderful African American gospel singer from Over Mountain Airy who's singing bluegrass harmonies with us 
on on this stuff. And and the idea of bringing together this unusually diverse group of people to make what is really a very traditional, musically traditional album, is something that I that I love doing. You know, and and uh, and 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 I really strongly believe that the only way for bluegrass to survive um, as bluegrass is that it must, as its institutions, its community, its industry institutions must be open to everybody who likes the music without qualification or reservation. And uh, so I've been kind of working on that. But yeah, no, I mean, it does come from my personal background, I guess, as somebody who's who grew up with, a, with an interest in, in uh, social justice movements and the uh, the kind of community that, uh, uh, that you found in the 60s in a lot of places. Yeah. To the extent that uh, I can put you on the spot and ask you this, is there, um, let's pretend that there's somebody listening right now who says, oh yeah, bluegrass, it's that really like kind of fast country music. I don't really know a lot about it. Um, what's the primer that they should pick up and read? And what's the two or three records that if they listen to them with an open mind and heart, they'd come away and say, oh, that's bluegrass. Oh, boy. Um, well, reading, uh, there's, there, I wish that the, the kind of standard reference book for the history of bluegrass is a book called Bluegrass, a History by Neil D. Rosenberg. And, uh, and, but that really basically only goes up to the mid 1980s. Right. And, um, and, and it is, it's not heavily academic, but it's fairly academic. Um, so in that respect, it might not be the best, best introduction. There is um, a, a guy here in North Carolina, actually named Tommy Goldsmith, put together a, a great anthology called the Bluegrass Reader, uh, which the University of Illinois Press publishes part of his Music in American Life series. And the Bluegrass Reader is probably the best introduction because, I mean, he goes back, he's got articles from, from the country music press of the 1940s when Monroe was, was first uh, coming popular and going all the way up into the, uh, around the turn of the century. So, and it covers a, covers a lot of ground. Um, it's not an organized history, but I think anybody who reads uh, uh, the, the Bluegrass Reader would get a pretty good idea of what the music is all about. As far as what to listen to, um, <laughs> God, you know, I, honestly, I mean, I, I could say, well, if you listen to these couple of records, you'll have a pretty good idea of, of, of what, what the uh, Bluegrass is about. But A, it's really more diverse than two or three records you're going are gonna to give a, a, a good picture of. And B... My inclination would be if I were conversing with somebody who said, I will tell me what this is about is I would want to try to find out what they already liked and already listened to, and then start with bluegrass, some, the corner of the bluegrass tent that relates to that kind of music. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, obvious things, if they're, if they're, if they're into fish or the Grateful Dead or, um, uh, that kind of stuff, then then I'd start them off with with uh, with with Billy Strings or or um, or the String Dusters, and maybe they're you know their Bill Monroe EP, which is is you know it's Bill Monroe song, so so that's good. Um, people who are more interested in country music, um, I might start with with some of the more kind of country flavored acts, like Chris Jones, the guy that I that I uh, work with, who's got a wonderful 
kind of country voice um, or or um, um, I think well I, I will say this I think Del McCurry is probably about as good an introduction to bluegrass as any single artist that's out there working today and I, and I do think that it it is um, I've worked for a record label. I've made lots of records, but I do think it's, it's, it is still a very uh, live performance plays a really important part in this music um, because it brings you in a community of people who are in the same thing. And you get to see how uh, bluegrass is very much an ensemble music. There aren't any solo bluegrass musicians, right? You've got to have a band and band is pretty much got to include, here's the instruments that are there in this band and they work together in a, in a very unusual way. Every instrument has like a couple of distinct roles. And so to just like the visual of watching a bluegrass band at work and how, okay, when this guy's singing in this verse, then the banjo player is playing behind them and accompanying them, playing backup. And then for the next one, the mandolin player is doing something different. And then the fiddle player takes a break and it all kind of works together in this, in this very uh, um, uh, synchronized sort of way. And to, to see that, in performance is, is I think really helps convey something important about the music that you don't get just from listening to records. So I, I kind of ducked your question a little. Yeah, bit. that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. It was unfair. Um, it's really well, the, the other thing is I, I will just say, I mean, one of the things about with all the streaming services platforms and, and all that, it's, it's, it's easy to find all kinds of playlists yeah. that will that will include that will give you a nice sampling of, uh, of of different artists. So that's right. You get a lot of different curators' perspectives because everybody yeah. can give you their their take on on any genre, really. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's interesting. It's it's hard, I, and I know our, our time is is winding up, but but it's hard to ignore some of the similarities between the evolution of bluegrass and the evolution of jazz as live forms, as being sort of ensemble sensitive and um, simple song structures as platforms from improvisation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But something you said a moment ago that really stood out for me is that there's no solo bluegrass configuration, if you will. Um, Whereas, you know, you could buy a Keith Jarrett solo album. um, Right, yeah. But you wouldn't get there, Jim Hall or whatever it is, choose choose your performer. But, um, you know, what would a what would an Earl Scruggs solo album be? It would be folk songs or country blues or whatever, or, you know, ballads. It wouldn't be bluegrass. Right. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just like a musical. From a from the musical characteristics point of view, you basically you, you the bass and the, and this is as a bass player. I'm proud to note that I think one of the really undervalued innovations that bill monroe brought was he he started all, right from the beginning with a bass player and there were and that was unusual in the string bands at the time so that was and that kind of gave music a this this kind of underpinning but you have um uh, uh it, it, it is it's an ensemble music pretty much by definition you have there have been solo performers who have been able to maintain a presence in the bluegrass performing circuit. John Hartford, mm-hmm. uh, you know, did all these fabulous solo shows playing the banjo, playing the fiddle and doing his, his dancing thing and, and all, all, all like that. Or there was a wonderful 
a songwriter named Randall Hilton who played kind of fingers picking style guitar and sang and told stories and, and whatnot, who was a very popular artist, solo artist. Um, but they are really, really the exception. And um, uh, uh, it's hard to find, you can find the Stanley brothers who from time to time would, when they were kind of down on their luck, had a three piece band, so banjo and guitar and bass. And that was it. But it's still, it's still that ensemble thing. And it's kind of just woven into the design of the music that at any given moment, there are these multiple levels of things going on. So there's a rhythm section and then there's somebody either singing or playing a solo. And then there's somebody else who's accompanying that solo, playing backup. So you kind of have these three levels, what's right in the front and then the rhythm bed behind it. And then something going on in this middle space and that just requires a number of different people all doing that at, at, at the same time. So, and then, and then the only other the only other time that you find a solo bluegrass record is is in the case of some of these phenomenal musicians like Cody Kilby who make a record and play all the instruments themselves. Right. But it's still a full bluegrass band, you know. <laughs> an ensemble so, of one. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, John, thank you very much. Um, I feel like. Uh, this could have been this hour one of four hours. Um, and I feel like there's probably a lot about your life and career we left out, but um, uh, thank you. It's just that you're fascinating and uh, it's so exciting to talk with you. Well, thank you. I'm really, and, and thanks Tyler Grant for, uh, for hooking us up. Yeah, that's right. That's Appreciate right. it a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much, John Weisberger. Thank you, Ann Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. If you like what we're up to here, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Join us again next week. In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. You could climb the highest mountain. You could swim the deepest sea You could walk that lonesome valley Never find